0: Welcome back to the 47th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including one that talks about the investment TSMC is making in Arizona and the extra funding that they're giving now that Biden's coming personally. A article from The Nation talking about Eric Adams bringing back the asylum Interesting story. We'll gr- get into that one here soon. And then an article from the New York Times uh, talking about the Peruvian president and the issues that he's going through right now. And then, of course, we will end the day with our daily delight a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. But that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. And as we've seen the Biden administration push really, really hard in order to try to work with the blue-collar workers, try to help the unions bring back some jobs, bring back some manufacturing, we saw him and his constituents, along with some Republicans, pass the CHIPS Act. And at first, it was deemed to be an amazing bill. A lot of people were supportive of it, a lot of rural Americans, middle Americans said, oh, yes, like in Ohio where this would spur more jobs, more manufacturing. But as time went on, the geopolitical realities set in. And then Biden also issued an executive order saying that we're not going to sell certain chip technologies to China. And now we started to see that there's a, a bigger plan here. It wasn't just, hey, let's spur on the American chip makers, let's actually strategically cut out China from the process. And, you know, it sounds like a great idea. It sounds like some Cold War tactics, if we're being honest, but it sounds like a great idea. But my question here for the daily debate is, are we forcing China to become less dependent on the U.S. and therefore have to develop their own strategic industry where they don't have to rely on the U.S. anymore for some of their chips. They don't necessarily have to rely on Taiwan. And are we forcing them to build up an industry in their own country that they can use going forward and may actually give them a competitive or at least a comparative advantage? So, and I've brought this up before, but I've never actually asked your opinions on it. And I would love to know what you have to say. So throw it down in the comments section. All right. We're going to jump into our first story from the Wall Street Journal. TSMC raises Arizona chip investment to $40 billion, as Biden visits. So the bipartisan support of the CHIPS Act and the aggressive geopolitical moves against China, yes, we just discussed that or at least outlined it, the U.S. has turned to longtime partner Taiwan to help build more chip production here domestically. Quote, President Biden visited a Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing co. site Tuesday in Arizona, where the company plans to build a second factory and increase its investment to $40 billion. TSMC, TSM, which is their stock ticker, d- they were down by about 2.5% the other day, which, of course, you know, Wall Street Journal, they have to talk about that. Let's get back into the quote, though. The world's largest contract chipmaker is stepping up its plan for U.S. manufacturing. The investment follows the passage of a law earlier this year designed to boost U.S. semiconductor production, reflecting Washington's concern about reliance on Asia for critical chip making. This is going to be an incredible asset of the state of Arizona, Mr. Biden said during remarks following a tour of the site. American manufacturing is back, end quote. And, you know, if there's going to be any kind of shift to manufacturing again, which there should be, and we haven't stopped manufacturing some goods, but we have offshored a lot of it and outsourced some processes. But if there's going to be any shift towards manufacturing, it should be in these new age technologies that we're only ever become more reliant upon and have caused major supply chain issues over the last few years. If you've gone to get a used car or a new car and the price is a little bit higher than you thought it was that's probably because there was a chip shortage and there technically still is and that's why car prices are so high because they use these chips just like everything else our phones tablets computer even smart computer screens use them to help process the information that your computer is outputting and what i mean by that is like a second monitor they have The smart ones have chips that allow them to process the image coming in. It's not just one simple, oh, let me just plug something in, and it will display the information. They have to have a chip inside them that allows them to fully process it and change the aspect ratio and ensure that everything comes across clearly. So these chips are used in everything. And, and let's be clear, I, I don't think anybody's done here. I think everybody's aware of that. So I think, if anything, it's a great... Idea that if we're making a shift to bringing back manufacturing jobs, it's not just manufacturing things that we were good at in the past, like automobiles or other products, but also to new age technologies that will allow us to develop our industries further, maybe have more innovation in those areas so we can be on the leading edge eventually close to Taiwan, and also allow us to decouple certain aspects of our supply chain from other people. I mean, we rely heavily right now on Asia and certain areas in the northern European area where there are different companies that, I mean, I take that back, northern European area. It's more like the Netherlands that has a lot of chip producers as well. So right now, the supply chain is is global, and that's great, but this is kind of a protectionist policy that allows us to ensure if anything does happen, if any Stray comments are made on the world stage, then we can say, okay, we're sorry. And if you put a tariff on us, okay, you do you, but we are still going to be able to produce what we want here. And it kind of gives us leverage saying, well, we don't have to come to these Chinese companies that are producing the chips very cheaply. We don't have to go to these companies in the Netherlands. And we don't have to pay the prices that they want us to pay to produce them or to start the process of producing them. Rather, we could do it at home, which gives us a price advantage, saying, well, if you can offer us cheaper rates than what we're doing here in the U.S. and ensure that you cut down on some of the supply costs by maybe shipping in bulk, then, yeah, we'll come to you rather than going to U.S.-based manufacturers. So it's going to give certain companies a strategic edge or at least the leverage to say well we don't have to use you but if you give us a good deal we can so you know this is just one step in a multifaceted battle going on against the influence of china in the technology sector though these projects you know they sound great and are truly going to benefit the u.s as much as politicians say they will actually let's uh, turn that into a question do you think that they're going to benefit the U.S. population as much as they say they will? Because at the end of the day, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I think for the most part it will. But then again, politicians always hype things up. So maybe they're being a little bit blustery here. Quote, in August, Congress passed the Chips and Science Act of 2020, which included $52.7 billion for U.S. semiconductor companies for research and development manufacturing and workforce development the bill also included provisions to reinforce the supply chain for u.s companies and spur technological innovation tsmc recently started making three nanometer chips in taiwan by 2026 those chips would likely be at least two generations behind the leading edge a nanometer is one billionth of a meter The number of nanometers is a rough guide to how much processing power is packed into a chip's small space. The lower the number, indicating a more advanced chip. The White House said that the first TSMC factory in Arizona, which originally was supposed to produce 5 nanometer chips, would also produce 4 nanometer chips. That factory is expected to start mass production in 2024. So, right now, Taiwan can produce three nanometer chips. When this factory is up and running in 2024, they'll be producing four nanometer chips. And as I'll highlight here in a little bit, Taiwan will be much further ahead at this point. So TSMC, while they are doing a great thing, coming to America and, or at least building more infrastructure in America and saying, yeah, we'll let you have a a chip producing facility. They are still keeping the best technology at home in Taiwan. And, you know, I could be a greedy American saying, no, 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 give us your best technology, give us everything you got. But I I understand the geopolitical move, and it's not just TSMC saying, oh, well, we want to keep a lot of the production here, we want to keep a lot of the money here. That is an aspect of it. But also, if they start outsourcing their best chip-producing technology, then at the end of the day, Taiwan loses a little bit of its strategic leverage. It loses the... Protection that some of these chip factories offer them. As the leading producer, TSMC and some other chip companies in Taiwan, as the leading producer of chips, they are relied upon in the global sphere. They're relied upon in China, the US, other developed nations like the EU. And I know technically you use a union of nations, but you get my point there. So this is a strategic move on their part saying, We'll give you some of our good chips, but we're not going to give you the best chips. You still have to come to us for that, and you have to ensure that China doesn't invade us in order to get those sweetheart deals that we've been giving you. And then also it says, well, China, you can't go to the U.S. to get those premium chips. You still have to come to us, so don't invade us because we may try to destroy the factories as you're invading. So... It's their strategic move. And also, like I said, profits are involved. TSMC says, well, if we give the best chips to the U.S. producer, then we're going to be making less money on our chips over here because, like I illustrated earlier, those factories are closer, so they're going to try to buy them from there because the supply chain's a little bit more tightly knit within the U.S., and also it's a little bit cheaper to ship them out. So... Though it is great that they're investing here, keep in mind that they still have their own strategic goals in mind. And also, if you're listening at this point, and I'm not saying anybody that would be listening this far in is not a generous person. I would say if you've listened this far in, you're probably just interested in news and you don't have a certain political lean on this issue or not, don't be mad at Taiwan. They are doing what they need to do to ensure that they can keep their position on the world stage and have influence still. All right, so there is the background information that I said I would get into that describes what they're thinking of doing. TSMC, quote, in advance of Mr. Biden's visit to the plants on Tuesday, the White House released details of a second factory plan for the site, saying construction would start in the coming year and production would begin in 2026. The second factory, first reported by the Wall Street Journal, will make chips with 3-nanometer technology, equal to the thinnest and fastest chips available today. And TSMC's total investment in Arizona will expand to $40 billion. The White House said it does not know how many years the investment would cover. Sorry, the White House didn't say how many years the investment would cover. And then they have a quote here that Taiwan's going to keep the most advanced semiconductor conductor technology at home in Taiwan. And that comes from the CEO of TSMC. So, like I said, they're ensuring their political situation and Biden's getting a pretty sweet deal out of it, making sure that Taiwan and U.S. relations are a little bit cozier. Joe Biden's probably going to get a few uh, attaboys from people in Congress and around the swamp in D.C. saying, oh, yeah, look at you. You know, warding off China, building up Taiwan U.S. relations, and bringing jobs back to the U.S. So, overall, I think it's a good story. There are just a few different caveats, a few different things that I would hope people are thinking about going into this, because every story, no matter how good, has its downsides, and every bad story has a bright side. All right. So, our second article comes from The Nation. Is Eric Adams bringing back the asylum? So as I covered last week, Eric Adams, the manager, sorry, the mayor of New York, put into action new policy that is reviving a conversation about institutionalization and mental health. Quote, New York Mayor Eric Adams announced an immediate expansion of an involuntary hospital policy in the city alongside a harrowing legislation proposal aimed at peeling back many of the few legal and administrative barriers that prevent involuntary psychiatric commitments. In his administration's announcement, the plan is billed as compassionate new vision to address mental health issues, evoking a moral mandate to deliver for our most vulnerable, end quote. And yes, if I had a very interesting or cynical tone there, it's not because I don't believe them. I, I promise you, it's it's really not. I totally, totally believe them. But I take that tone genuinely because if they truly believe what they're saying, I can't read their minds. I can't go to Eric Adams and shake his hand and be like an empath and understand his feelings on the matter and all this and the author kind of reads into it the way that they want to. They read into it like these are more cynical actions rather than genuine actions. But if Eric Adams genuinely wants to help these people, then I think it's okay. I don't think it's the best necessarily the best way to go about it, but it could be a cheaper way to go about it and a more easy way to sell it to the people and a very quick fix rather than a long-term solution, which is another way to save money, essentially, except for the fact that you're going to be sending people to institutions where the taxpayer is going to be paying for them for a long time. So if his intentions are good, I think it's good. If his intentions are cynical and evil, then I think it's bad. But I can't claim to know. So we're going to jump into what the author has to say, some of my opinions on the matter, and try to break it down a little bit more. So like I said, though I don't agree with the author about everything, I do question the morality of this policy as they do. So, if Adams is doing it in good faith and genuine, then I think it is a moral action to try to help these people and try to ensure that at the end of the day they're getting the help that they need. And if he's doing it just to get them off the streets and to ensure that people don't have to deal with the homeless crisis, they don't have to homelessness crisis, and they don't have to see it then i think that is a immoral action and so people will say well actions are some people will say actions are just moral or they're immoral it doesn't matter what the intention is behind it and though i don't hold this consistent standard for all my moral evaluations i think in this case it's it's applicable if you genuinely believe that institutionalizing these people if you hold that in your heart in the data you have Proves that, even if it's data that is contested, if there is data that proves that and you can justify your belief, then I think that at the end of the day, it's morally justifiable because he believes that he is able to positively affect New York, help the citizens that have been brutally the word that YouTube, the R word that YouTube doesn't like to uh, hear about, or the robberies, the different killings in New York because of mentally ill people. And also, not just help the populace of New York, but help the homeless population get off the streets, possibly address some of their psychiatric issues, maybe get medication, maybe be able to come back into society as a functioning member who adds value to the society as a whole. I think if that's his intention, then that's moral. And at the end of the day... I am not going to sit here and say that that is always the case, that the intention of the action matters. Because some people could say, well, people that commit genocide, they truly believe that at the end of the day, they are going out there and doing what's right for their segment of the population. And therefore, by that same logic that I just gave, if they believe that it's a good thing, and if they have statistical evidence that it will help their population, even if that evidence isn't hundred percent sound then that could be morally justifiable under those same parameters and i do understand where my intellectual consistency is falling apart here Uh, but i do think at the end of the day this is not the same thing it's not the same situation it doesn't affect as many people and i think eric adams though he may be a slimy politician i'll give him the benefit of the doubt on this one Because the way he's framed it, I think that he genuinely cares about this segment of the population. Not just the New Yorkers, but also the homeless people. And he's trying to come up with a solution that will actually work and can be implemented quickly rather than programs that will take years to implement, plus more tax dollars and more social security workers. And so on and so forth. Sorry. Social workers, not social security workers. So on and so forth. But looking at this policy, the author is very cynical and has a historical-based and a very informed view. So I feel like my opinion is my opinion. Let's give you a little bit of insight into what they're thinking and why they believe what they believe. Quote, the central goal of Adams' agenda is to undo barriers to hospitalization. The legal and administrative guidelines intended to keep people from being involuntarily hospitalized and thus removed from society against their will. Under an immediate guideline chains Adams has expanded the scope of behavior that could result in forced psychiatric evaluation from, quote, likely to result in serious harm to much broader criteria that the individual, quote, appears to be mentally ill and displays an inability to meet basic living needs, end quote. And will, you know, the author it brings up, will this make it easier to admit people that cannot properly support themselves and therefore cannot live on their own, But the author also points out if implemented with malice, it could degrade very quickly or it could escalate, essentially. And while I think the author is being cynical, they are going and they are bringing up something that's very, very important. That in the past, this rule that if you have some sort of mental difference, if you're a little bit neurodivergent is the word I think people would use nowadays, if you defy social norms in any way, then you could be seen as someone who is mentally ill, which the language here says appears to be mentally ill. That is so broad. At the end of the day, that it could encompass people with depression who or people who have certain diseases that just make them look unhealthy, even though they could function properly. So, you know, I feel like it is a slippery slope argument when you ask the question, well, what is looks like mentally ill defined. Is it people with anxiety? They are technically mentally ill, right? Or people, sorry, chronic anxiety. Or people with depression, technically they're mentally ill, right? Chronic depression. Or maybe I'm misunderstanding something. But that's the discussion that even if I'm being a little bit glib there or I'm being a little bit naive, that's not actually the point. I'm not trying to say both of those are mental illnesses. What I'm getting at is to whom are we comparing the standard who is the social norm and at that point we have to ask well could this not be expanded out could people that are a little bit different that eric adams and his police force don't like could they just get rid of them because they oh they appear to be mentally ill and i think that while the author is being cynical i and I think I'm falling into the slippery slope fallacy, I do agree that that could be an issue in the future and that if we are going to put some of these policies in place to address these issues and we're going to do it in a moral way that's also future-proof, then we need to be more specific. This is always the issue with certain legislation that goes up through the courts or certain executive orders that is struck down because the language is so broad It can apply to so many different things. It can be manipulated, extracted. It can be implemented in ways that are not necessarily what the authors may have intended, but because it's so broad, it could be in the future. So I think at the end of the day that we need to be careful with these sort of policies, whether you think it's moral or not, whether you have your own moral judgment or not. We still have to be careful with the way we implement them, the way we word them, because they can have long-standing implications in the future. And the author has one last quote. We'll finish on this, and then we'll move on to our last article. To anyone with some knowledge of the asylum system, where the last half-century of disability rights movements, a sudden increase in the state's capacity to institutionalize or incarcerate individuals is an ominous sign, where criteria for involuntary hospitalization have been reduced Increases in psychiatric institutionalization, goodness gracious, have always followed. Involuntary hospitalization has a long and fraught history. In the 19th century, individuals could be institutionalized with very little reason, often owing simply to small infractions of social norms. And that's what I was getting at with the social norms. All right, we're going to jump to our last article here from the New York Times. He vowed to transform Peru. Instead, he's facing his third impeachment. The president of Peru, I believe I pronounced that correctly, by the way, Pedro Castillo, faces a third impeachment attempt in Congress, the latest crisis for the leader who rose to power promising to address the country's chronic inequalities. End quote. So, you know, Trump and Castillo, and I'll be making this analogy for the first part of this segment, they have a few comparisons. They were considered outsiders when they were elected president. And though he is left-wing, Castillo, and Trump is right-wing, and he also didn't spend years hobnobbing with the elites before running for the election, there are some comparisons that I will point out and I think are important to highlight. Quote, Estorfila Casillas, um, and I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong, recalled the joy that erupted in the region after a fellow Caspiño, or poor farmer, was elected president last year. Everyone celebrated. Every last one of us, Miss Casillas said. We thought, finally, someone who knows what it's like to work the land. Last year, Pedro Castillo... Became Peru's first left wing president in more than a generation after campaigning on promises to address the poverty that rural, rural Peruvians have long disproportionately suffered and which worsened under the pandemic. So he kind of spoke to a certain segment of the population that had lost their voice and wanted to send a shocking and loud message to the system that they saw as oppressing them or keeping them down. Does that remind you of anyone? And yes, the answer is Trump. Look at that. Woo. But Castillo's times as president has been bogged down by the pandemic, the ongoing economic crisis in Peru, and multiple accusations of crimes. Quote, prosecutors accused Mr. Castillo of leading a criminal organization to profit off government contracts and repeatedly obstructing justice charges the president has denied. Peru's young democracy has already been hobbled by years of high-level corruption scandals, resulting in five presidents since 2016. I mean, we'll get back to the quote, and it's only a short thing after this. Five presidents in the course of six years. Are you kidding me? That kind of s- instability is not fruitful for a country. No wonder they're having economic issues on top of the supply chain issues everybody around the world is facing on top of the economic crisis or upcoming recession the world is going to face. So, you know, five! Five presidents in six years! It's insane! Quote, Mr. Castillo's tenure has only de- deepened the sense that the country's political system is broken, end quote. So, you know, whether or not these accusations sticks, it has not been, <laughs> as they have not the last two times, they have... ...led Castillo to become less popular with more urban voters, the Lima elites, who already didn't like him. And also, his support in the rural areas is is dwindling or going down just a little bit. Quote, Cama Marcia, a mostly rural region, 350 miles north of Lima, where Mr. Castillo was born and built his career has long been one of the country's poorest areas. In communities stretching from the regional capital to Mr. Castillo's tiny home tiny home village of San Luis de Pona. Pona. Supporters like Miss Casillas said they expected more from him. Quote, he said he was going to change the country. He said he tricked us. Sorry, she said he tricked us. So... He has never really had the urban voters, and now he's losing a little bit of his base. So where does does he really go from here? I don't feel like he has many options. There's a clear clear sense of dismay in what had once been Mr. Castillo's stronghold. One evening in November, Jabierto Quantina, a farmer in the province of Chota, headed out on a patrol with other members of the Rodillas Campinas. Campinas, or security patrols that are made up of farmers and act as a type of local police force Mr Quintina said that Mr Castillo who was part of the patrols as a young man has used his camp- campesino identity to gain support without actually helping the rural population quote he really offered one thing and is doing another he said quote it hurts more than someone who knows you when it's someone who knows you end quote and You know, these quotes really show that the people from his community, even the people that necessarily did the same job as him, that really could relate to him, or he could relate to them more accurately, even they are becoming discontent with his efforts and really questioning whether he should be in office anymore. So we'll see if he has a future in politics in Peru. And also, yes, I know that I probably butchered some of those pronunciations. I trust me, I tried to, I looked up a lot of them and I'm trying to work on it. Sorry. And if you're a person who speaks Spanish and you listen to them and you said, oh, wow, really good. And then the next one I was, I completely butchered. Let me know down in the comment section, lambast me for it. I would love to become more informed and uh, have a better understanding. All right, we're going to move on to the Daily Delight. And this one comes from People. I know, right? Fancy People magazine. Quote, meet the adventure cat who globetrots in style. I just take him everywhere, says owner. So imagine you met someone who offers to take you all around the world on adventure after adventure, and all you have to do is pose for some Instagram photos. Quote, when Aaron Gelbermans rescued Liebenstein as a kitten in September 2020, she decided they'd jump feet first into adventures together. Quote, he was so energetic and active, so I just started taking him everywhere, from biking and camping to road trips and hikes, she said. He took right to the harness and leash, end quote. And this guy, honestly, this cat is so extremely photogenic. I mean, I'm kind of jealous, and he kind of looks like Tails from Sonic. If you can pull up some of these pictures at some point, and look at him. It's it's kind of amazing. "Quote: It's been amazing. He's a little best friend who literally goes everywhere, and he's just so laid back with it all." Says Gilbermans, 31, who often dresses the domestic short hair in colorful gear and protective goggles. He loves meeting strangers. He'll just go right up to people and sit in their laps. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or any of the photos from today's Daily Delight or read any of the articles from today, they'll be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there is also the Twitter handle at your daily flip. Try to retweet, post, make a comment daily on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I also post the link to the podcast so you can go directly from there rather than having to come to the youtube video or search for it anything like that with all that said there's only one more thing to say stay safe don't die